All right. Who who might like to get us started? Opening uh, to your poem. Give us the page number. We'll turn there. All right. We got Taylor McCone's going to kick us off. Give a description of the poem, and then we will talk about it. So, Taylor, what'd you find in your poem? Wait, teacher. So I selected homesick blues on page twenty-six and twenty-seven. Um, I found that the poem has 18 photo lines, and they organize into three stanzas. And the stanzas are sessets, and so that means they're comprised of six lines. And then Hughes' theme of homesickness is revealed in the poem, and he reveals it primarily through the longing to board a train and go to the south, which is back to his home. And I kind of have a feeling that it's constant, and maybe along with the... Um, form of the poem that his homesickness is also predictable. And I find that the expansion of I opens my mouth and laughs is interesting. And I interpreted it by stressing and and not stressing on, which is what I kind of would have done. Excellent. Would anyone like to read the poem aloud before we get into more discussion on it? The um, railroads, bridges, a sad song in the air. The railroads, bridges, a sad song in the air. And every time the, the trains pass, I want to go somewhere. I went down to the station. My heart was in my mouth. Went down to the station. Heart was in my, my mouth. Looking for a boxcar to roll me to the south, homesick blues, Lord, a terrible thing to have. Homesick blues is a terrible thing to have to keep from crying. I opens my mouth and laughs. <laughs> what do you think might be the author's intended meaning for his audience? The fact is he wanted to tell the reader. Well, so how he says, like the grammar is different, I feel like in this, mm. like the D and the Ma and all that. Right. But in all of his other poems, they're not like that. So is that a particular, like, is there a reason that he did it for this one particular poem? Oh, absolutely. That's a good eye. Okay. What do you think? So he uses, like, the southern dialect to, to emphasize the feeling of, I guess, kind of missing home. And I guess home for him in this context is in the south, which is why he's, like, constantly wanting to get on the train and go south. This might be completely unrelated, but um, you know, we talked about dialects that one day in class randomly. We talked about how like people from like like they'll say things differently. Like if Hannah goes to back uh, Pennsylvania, whatever she'll say Appalachian, but when she's down here, she'll say Appalachian. Maybe since time he avoids the use of non-standard dialects. Here he brings it in in a strong way, and like you say, there's still there's a key purpose there. What about the great line here, my my heart is in my mouth? What does my heart is in my mouth mean? He kind of like um I'm not really sure how to put this, but like when he says my heart is in my mouth, like he's telling you things that are like coming from the soul and like what he's really trying to say. 
I feel like Abby, I think he's just goofing what's in his heart. And I guess in what's in his heart in this case is that he's very homesick. He just wants to go back to his hometown. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay, so there's like a picture of a train in there, and I feel like trains will represent the city. I don't know what time this particular is, but if he's talking about the south and he's talking how he is, he probably was more in like fields and like back in the mountains and stuff more than the city or the train. Maybe like this homesick blues, maybe this was meant to go along with like a blues tour, maybe. Yeah. You connected form and meaning earlier, a very regular normal form. And it would perhaps allow it to become a blues lyric easily. Yep. Alright, does it stir up a connection with something that makes you homesick now? That that effect on the reader? What do you think in that regard? I think it like definitely does, but since I'm already like home and like I'm where I grew up, it's not as much of an effect, but like from school and home, it's different. Like, yeah, I do get that sometimes, that homesick vibe. Okay. Like, from when I'm at school, I'll get that quote-unquote homesick vibe, but it's not as great of a feeling unless I'm, like, completely in a different state or, like, different city or town. Then sure. it's, like, that day. Yeah. Like, when we were all, like, like really in but it doesn't always have to be like homesick. It could just be, I mean, I guess, a place that you went to like, a lot, I guess. Like if you went to like go see your family in like California or something, and then you came back here and you read it, you could get like a not homesick, but like in a way sick vibe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, any sense of dislocation, yeah. This one kind of like reminds me, I mean, I don't know, I feel like I've definitely like gotten used to it down here, but like when I read things about like being homesick and stuff, like I think about memories that from like Pennsylvania, but it's not like I wouldn't consider it homesick. I just consider it like hmm. thinking about memories. Sure. I don't think it would be homesick either, because I picked the poem Afro American Fragment and this poem was all about him wanting to go back to Africa because mm -hmm. he missed the culture and all that. And the first three lines just say so long so far away is Africa and I think it's just him missing his family in the film that we're talking about. Sure excellent yeah you might want to go to page 31 the great transition to Afro-American fragment and he feels very disconnected doesn't he mm -hmm. so he continues that theme of dislocation disconnectedness so might someone read Afro-American fragment which Wells takes us to there as well so long, so far away is Africa. Not even memories alive. Save those that history books create. Save those that songs Beat back into the blood. Beat out of blood with words sad sung. In strange, unusual tongue. So long, so far away is Africa. Subdued and time lost are the drums. And yet, through some vast mist of race, here comes this song. I do not understand the song of out of of their yearning lost without a place so long, so far away is Africa's love dance. 
So he's thinking about it in this kind of fragmented relationship he has with these African roots. Uh, someone who did this poem, what were some of your kind of formal analysis there? Lines, how many different things? What did you find in the strategies? Yeah. Well, well, it had 12 lines and it just had two stanzas. So mm -hmm. it was kind of more dense and you really want to get a point out there with just the two stances. I mean, I guess you could kind of split it up into three, but um, he specifically split it up into two. Yeah. So two stanzas, 12 lines each. And I remember we talked about the first stanza The it is almost separable, and there's a middle section, a middle chunk of six lines. Does everyone see that? And what's significant about the middle chunk of six lines, uh, Wells? Um, it's kind of him wishing he was there, I guess, and him um, just remembering the culture and his friends and family and just what they would do there, mm -hmm. like uh, their songs and their dancing. Yeah, yeah. Lines that stand out, words, symbols, ideas that stand out that you highlight here and out. I guess like not even memories alive, save those that history books create, and like save those songs. I guess he's kind of just wanting to try and remember like what his ancestors and maybe even he did back in Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about this, but since is Africa is its own line, I feel like that's supposed to symbolize how far away it is. Okay. Yeah, there's a separation even of the line in is Africa, so far away is Africa. Excellent. Using form to connect with meaning there. I'm kind of, this is not really about the poem, I mean it kind of is, but I was looking over at like the illustration and that illustration and out it's showing he's like standing in water. And I mean, I'm, my guess is that he's standing in like the Atlantic, which connects to Africa, so it's kind of like showing that like he's trying as hard as he can to like remember like you know sure. be there when he like is an ocean away right yep and again i feel i don't know the timeline of this but i don't know if it's like right when slavery ended or something but i don't maybe he feels like he doesn't fit in with his skin and maybe like some of the and he just wants to go back to where everything everybody's Final curve, um, and it's really short. It's only one stanza, and it is four lines. Um, but 
it really, like, it's really dense, and it's putting a point out there, like, pretty boldly, and I think, like, the entire message is that there's nowhere left to go, like, unless you leave entirely. Excellent. Well, how about someone read it? Who would like to read final words? Yeah, go ahead. When you turn the corner and you run into yourself, then you know that you have turned all the corners that are left. Excellent. And who else did final curve? I know a couple of you all did. Who'd like to give us some of the analysis that you had on final curve? Excellent. Have any of you ever even heard someone refer to life as spring, summer, fall, and winter? Um, and I know as we were talking about it, we, we wondered if that was even part of his plan in four lines. What about the rhyme scheme? There isn't one. Yeah, a very brief free verse, quatrain kind of in its form, but they don't actually hold together as a rhyme. Is there a purpose for that form? What meaning do you think he has in that form? Four corners, like four curves, four things to round there, Diana. Um, I think like it's um, putting it together. Like if it's flowing, and you know, like if it's rhyming, then you kind of get a picture in your mind, and you can add words or thoughts. But when it's like this, it gives you exactly what he thinks, and it makes it like it makes it exact. Like a thing, so. Okay, so a feeling of exactness. I wonder if it connects also with some of his previous poetry, this idea of dislocation, almost like he's saying life doesn't always have a rhyme and a reason. Uh, the one season might not be perfectly linked up with the previous one. What do you think of that kind of meaning? Yeah? Uh, you talked about how um, since they don't like rhyme or anything, that they're like, Yeah, it's almost like you can be a different person in one season and, and a different one in the other. He often brings together this idea of diversity or adding something from different people. Um, I know a couple of you did the uh, theme for English B. That might be a good one to bring in now. Who's, who's got that description? Yeah, Hannah. Um, so I did theme for English B, and I thought it was really interesting because it starts out with kind of saying, the instructor saying that um, you know he needs to write this page, and so I guess we call that quintain. And then the next, I kind of broke it up into like then two different stanzas that are essay-like, 
um, because he's kind of writing, you know, about, um, you know, he basically, it's kind of, you know, because he's, he's writing a page for this class that he's taking. And it's kind of, he's kind of writing it to the instructor by saying that, um, that like, of, like a part of you, um, you know, and he's like referring to the instructor. And um, then it says uh, on page 43, it says, you are white yet a part of me as I am part of you. That's American. And I don't know, I guess it kind of sums up what he's kind of talking about by saying how America, you know, right now is kind of a part between like white and black people, but at the same time, they're just as connected. You know, sometimes they might, then it goes on to say that sometimes perhaps you don't want to be part of me, nor do I often want to be part of you, but we are still, even though. I also did a theme for English B, and I thought the theme was like human nature's unity, because he talks about how he's the only black kid in his school, but then he says, like at the top of page 43, he still likes the same things, like to work and read and learn like understands life and so they're really not that different mm -hmm. and when he's saying like he's a part of his instructor even though his instructor is white and much older than him they're still like a part of each other yeah i wonder if this is also kind of referencing another poem he wrote it's like let america be america again it also talks about like the split between these people it's talking about how like there's poor farmers and all this stuff but it's America. It's like these problems have made America the land it has become. So I wonder if this poem is kind of referencing that one too, in a sense. I think it's also interesting um, when it says, So will my page be colored that I write? Because like I'm not white. And so I guess he's also kind of showing that difference as well. I think he's showing that words no matter who writes them still have the same meaning and just because you might have different thoughts or you might look differently doesn't mean that like your words are different or don't matter as much i think it's showing that words are powerful and they kind of connect things and sure. they can connect people and i have um, my poem that is about words like freedom it says there are words like freedom sweet and wonderful to say on my heartstrings, freedom sings all and every day. There are words like liberty that almost make me cry. If you had known what I know, you would know why. Um, the words like liberty and freedom, it kind of, they give a feeling of like unity and kind of connection. And I think it, I think it shows that like words have meaning, and it's not just about like who or what or why. I think it's you know more about. Well, I guess it's actually more about why they're written. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and the form of this poem adds to that meaning, doesn't it? The form of this poem, it's one of his sweetest poems to recite, isn't it? Right? And did you notice that when Anna read it? It reads so easily, where often he tries to make his poetry a little bit harder to read, a little bit more disjointed, maybe a few more interpretive options for the meter. What did you find here, Anna, or anyone um, else who picked this poem on the meter and the flow? It yeah. has eight lines, two stanzas. Um, the stanzas are quatrains composed of four lines, so everything's like completely equal. Yeah. And something really interesting I found is at the 
the last word or um, syllable of every single line flips in the two. So like if it's stress, stress, unstress, then it'll mm-hmm. switch and be stress, stress, unstress. You know, it'll flip it completely yep. and it makes it kind of, you know, flowing and it's contrasting, but it's also like really similar and I think it just... Yeah, excellent. It's just like saying freedom and liberty are sweet words to say and he puts it into a sweet poem to say, one that really flows off so nicely. Anyone else have a comment on words like freedom here from his, his meeting on page 38? It's a little bit like the Shakespearean sonnet we read, where there's a turn right at the end. Well, what's his turn or his surprising point right at the end of the poem? Um, well, it's kind of showing you how you feel, like sweet and wonderful to say, it almost makes you cry. At the very end, it says, if you had known what I know, you wouldn't know why. It kind of like stops short, so it doesn't completely finish that rhyme. Yeah. And it makes you, you know, it makes you think for yourself instead of just, you know, listening to his words. And, and who is it that might not know why they are such sweet words to say? I think it's just they've never experienced segregation like that. Sure. And he's, he's saying that my experience has deepened the sweetness of these words. All right. Anything else here on words like freedom, or does it maybe a good time to transition to another poem that someone has for us? All right. Anyone else here? I know we've got someone did merry-go-round, I believe. We don't have someone on merry go on page 36. Okay, yeah, let's hear about merry go a little bit. What do you see there for the form of merry go on page 36? How many lines, for example, there, Lily? 13. Okay, 13. Which is odd, isn't it? 13 is a very strange number. How many other poems have we found with 13 lines? That's the first one, in fact, from all of our Shakespeare work and our um, our Hughes work here. What what stands out about the form? The rhyming or anything like that here, Lily? Um, okay. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't have a horse to ride on. And what is the irony? He uses irony in a special way here at the beginning of this poem. What's that? Well, he's talking about the gym section. Yes, and he's he's remembering down south there is a Jim Crow car on the train, right? That a specific car where a black person might ride. So he opens this question about the marathon the carnival. We're going to read the first three lines there. What is your relation? Where's the Jim Crow section on this merry-go-round? Because I want to ride. Do you, do you feel like yeah, Hughes is kind of making fun of it, but it's coming from the voice of some youngster who's asking it quite genuinely. And where is the irony found in that? Yeah. Because even though they try to keep segregation complete, like there's no way to completely like you can't separate a merry-go-round. It's circular. Like 
there's yeah. it's completely even on every single side. And so, you know, he's the young kid kind of probably all, always grew up in the segregation. This is normal for him. Yeah. But um, Langston Hughes is kind of saying, well, you know, it might be normal for him, but, you know, it's just, it, it's different. They, they can't make it complete. Yeah. Keep everyone completely separate. Right. Reality is going to keep punching through in some way. You're, you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Yeah. Who wants to read Married Around? Read right through there. Uh, Paris, I want to go for it. Where is the Jim Crow section on this Married Around poster? Because I want to know. Down south where I came from, white and colored, can't sit side by side. Down south on the train, there's a Jim Crow car. On the bus we're put in the back, but there ain't no back to a Married Around. There's a horse for a black, for a tree that's black. Excellent, excellent. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I actually have a question. Who is Jim Crow? Yeah, so Jim Crow uh, refers, that is a way of referring to the whole set of laws that created um, what's known as de facto segregation. So separating white and black persons, in fact, in the course of their lives. Um, trying to create what was known as a separate but equal doctrine, a notion where... Uh, white and black persons were equal, but they just had to be separate. And of course, the separateness actually enforced a kind of disequality. Go ahead, there, Alicia. Oh, I'm just saying, yeah, it says right. There's a little little note there as well. So some of these laws were uh, some of these laws even were actually quite ridiculous and had to do even with uh, cultural uh, practices and different things like that. And they they created a sense of separation real separation in so many ways. So that has to do, say, with the different uses of bathrooms, water fountains, separate cars on the train like he refers to here. Yeah. And so you will hear that phrase more and more in your awareness and study of history. It just refers to a whole set of laws to try to enforce that separate but equal doctrine. So obvious he's pointing to that fact that separate but equal doesn't really work. Well, I know we had someone do no doubt commercial theater. I think it could be a good time to go there. Was it just was it just Estella or did someone else do that? Well then let's have Estella take us to page 35 in No Doubt Commercial Theater. So I kind of thought like it talked about how people took the blacks' creations and completely just like changed them. And I feel like if you it's kind of like how the Romans did it and the Greeks did it. Where they huh. just took the names of the Greek gods and it's like all completely flipped. If you look back, it's just the same god. Mm. So I felt like they kind of did that in a way. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, really good insight there. Who wants to be our reader for Noah Commercial Theater? Sure. You've taken my beliefs in God, you sing them on Broadway, and you sing them in Hollywood Bowl. And you mix them up with sympathies and you fix them so they don't sound like me. Yep, you done taken my beliefs in God. You also took my spirituals and gone. You put me in Macbeth and Carmen Jones and all kinds of swing Mikados. And in everything but what's about me, but someday somebody will stand up and talk about me and write about me, black and beautiful, and sing about me and put on plays about me. I reckon it'll be me myself. Yes, it'll be me. Mm -hmm. So what? what is his conclusion at the end? So Estella sets up the problem, right? A lot of original 
productions of African-American artists have then almost been fixed, that is, adopted, uh, taken over into a kind of a Broadway setting here. What's his response? We kind of have like hopes for the future, like maybe someday it'll actually be what I've done, because we've completely changed it so that it's not like kind of just like taking the credit. Okay. What did you got? Well, I guess he's just saying that, well, maybe, maybe someday as Gracie's saying, someone will stand up for him and nobody will be able to steal his things. Okay. He even thinks that he'll be the one to do it. That's one thing that stands out so much about Langston Hughes, right? He sees this, this lack often of respect or interest in African American art, but he also says, you know what? I'm one of the ones to fix it. You know, I'm going to step in and produce uh, this art myself. Any lines here that really stand out in terms of the way you would interpret them or significant symbolism or dialect? Okay. So Nick points to someday, somebody old. And what's what's going on with that strange contraction at the end there, Nick? Someday, somebody old. What's the significance of, of saying someday they'll talk about me? Of being talked about? He doesn't really know when, he doesn't know who, but someday, like, he's going to get credit for what he did. Okay, yeah. He's got this, he's still holding this, like, flame of hope that maybe someday he will be able to sell all his works that are printed here. Sure. Mm-hmm. I feel like another substantial line was in the Dixon. I don't know, I just think it has a big impact on the film. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. And you fixed them. What, what, what is so significant about that, just, and you fixed them? It draws attention to how white people don't think that the, that the African Americans are okay the way they are. Okay. Uh, fixed it. Uh, that becomes sometimes a, a phrase that almost feels like something a person is proud of and needs to be modified. Yeah. It so. kind of reminds me of like, today's society, how People are like told to be a certain way when you're just also told to be yourself. Sure. And how people are telling you like to change in like this way or that way. Right, right. It's like nothing even you can do with the standards of society. Okay. The standards of society, the expectations, all those kinds of things. And it's it's even more um, significant when it's art, isn't it? You know, when you produced a piece of art. Yeah. I think it's kind of saying like the people who are in power, like the right now the white people in this time, they control, you know, kind of what goes out among the black like works and stuff. It's kind of like now artists can do pretty much, you know, like the abstract art and stuff and they can say this is art and it kind of sets that standard. Well, you know, it doesn't really have to have a whole lot of meaning. It can just be, you know, colors. And But since they're in charge, they can set the standard for every single other person. I think it's kind of showing that, sure. you know, it's some people don't really have control over that. It's showing white supremacy. Have you ever noticed the difference between when you just uh, take maybe a, a little quiz and everything's kind of objective, and when you turn in a paper that you've worked on, 
for a piece of art that you've created? What, what is the difference sometimes when you get maybe critiqued or corrected between those two things? Yeah. Well, if you're just like taking a quiz or something, like it's more just like what you've been taught and what you've memorized and stuff. But if it's your work of art, it like you came up with it yourself and like you're proud of it. And so, like, if you took a quiz and you got a 100, you would be proud of it, but maybe not in the same way. Okay. Okay. Go for it. And I think, um, and quizzes, there's answers, but for pieces of art and writing, you can go anywhere with it. Like in art, sure, you might have like something you're supposed to paint, but there can always be like a backstory to it. And if somebody like corrected that, I feel like it would be more upsetting than it would have made. Sure. Yeah, there's whatever all the answers are. Sure. Yeah, it's meant to combine and unite an idea that way. Yeah. Maddie's jumping in here. Yeah. I think it's his way of fighting that oppression because um, he can't really stand up and like physically do anything. So I think he expresses that through his poetry. Sure. Yeah. We've even talked a little bit about his influence on a, a figure like Martin Luther King Jr. and others in that sense of how he chooses to engage. I want to add to what you just said about like how art is. Like this weekend, I went like, to a modern like art museum, and I found a bunch of like abstract art, and you could sit there and just think about it, like. There's a giant blue chicken on the roof, and you would sit there and think, why did this person create it? Sure. Yeah. Meant not to have quick answers, uh, a lot of the modern art is to, to leave you pondering. Yeah, are, are we missing? I think we're missing a poem. I know we had them up on the board there. Who's got a poem here to turn our attention to? We have the last. I thought someone did Hey, Hey, Sun's Arise. Did someone do Hey, Hey? <laughs> Nick, was that your poll? Fantastic. Yeah, why don't we turn to Hey, Hey, Nick, on uh, page 29. So what did, you, what did you discover here in Hey, Hey, Nick, page 29? It has one stanza and it has six lines. Excellent. Okay. And, can read it? Yeah, read it. Go for it. Sun's rising. This is going to be a, this is going to be my. Excellent. What did you find in, in, in rhyming how the lines are related to each other? Oh, sure. Okay. The dialect there, rising, rising, that kind of thing, cutting it off. And then song and song, oh, same word, but then the last word long, so two. Four and six. What do you think his main purpose? What he's trying to communicate to the reader here, Nick, or anyone else here? What effect do you think he wants to have on the reader? It's kind of more upbeat. Like he's like being optimistic about something. Yeah. And I think it's he's kind of showing like you just have to move on sometimes because if you're just like upset about something forever, that's not really helpful. But he just says like I could. I could choose to be sad. I was sad like all night long, but I'm just gonna choose to move on. Yeah. I think that the line "I could be blue," but it kind of stands out because um, the song, the you know, the two ones have song, and then long, and then the rising, and then but that one is like it's kind of set apart. It's like the only one doesn't rhyme with anything, mm -hmm. and I think it's showing you know like. 
this has been happening. It's kind of like a cycle, but I'm going to break the cycle and I mean, I'm going to kind of change it. Yeah. I think he's talking about how long you can change the side where he was. Mm -hmm. I know that's And it's also a comparison to the, just the hangover where it's kind of just kind of down and like a depressing mood and then yeah. hey, hey, more of like an upswing, like things are going to look up soon. Yeah. Right. I think also I was just looking at hay and it was saying how um, like the sun's setting and the sun's setting, but then in hey, hey, it's saying that the sun's rising. Mm -hmm. So it kind of switches really fast from, you know, like Taylor was saying, more downbeat to more. Right. And he's affirmed both these kind of emotions associated with the night and with the day. Um, once in the poem, hey, and now in the poem, hey, hey. Um, I feel like the poems that we've read before this have been a little more down and um, not as like pumped up as this is and I saw a quote the other day it's only you can make your own happiness and I think that this is so much like this like he's just going to make the best out of his life either way mm -hmm. <laughs> right. All right. Oh, did, did we miss anyone yeah. in the poem you prepared okay what, what you got which poem Paris Sorry, which which page number do you have there? Um, thirty-two. Gotcha. So, genius child, thirty-two. Go for it. Sure. This is a song for the genius child. Sing it softly. Make the song louder. Sing it softly as ever you can, lest the song get out of hand. Nobody loves a genius child. They make Love an eagle, chain the lion. Wild and tame, can you love a monster as frightening as the wind? Nobody loves a genius child. Go ahead and sing it this way louder. Okay. Now, ladies, in the analysis, what did what, you find? What were some of the interesting features of the analysis? I I thought it was kind of confusing. Yeah. Because I picked it and then I read it and I was confused why nobody would like a genius child because I feel like it would be the other way around and nobody would like somebody that's stupid. Okay, okay. Yep. I think this is probably like really far-fetched, but sometimes a genius child, I don't know, I guess maybe he might, like when he gets older or something, he might like speak out, you know, against like what the world is saying. Right. So, I kind of agree with both. So like when they say like kill him, like don't let him get killed. I don't know. That that's kind of hard text. Um, well, I was wondering that it might make people feel like like upset people because they don't want to feel lower than someone else. It's like human nature to want to be the smartest or the funniest or whatever. So if there's someone higher than them, it might make them feel like. Honestly, I kind of agree with Hannah and when she, like how Hannah said that whenever someone's smarter than them, they kind of rise up and say stuff. They might try to think that they're better than everyone else and brag. Okay. Yeah, I think that, um, well, geniuses, they have the mind power and the willpower to go against standards, and I think that society doesn't like geniuses since. Um, George made thinkers prefer 
other things that are significant. Kind okay. of going back to what Sloan said, like, I feel like people would kind of like a genius kid. I feel like, um, I feel like, you know, like when it relates to the, when it refers back to the genius child, I think it's kind of like a new leader, sort of. Like, and I feel like they mention a child specifically because that's someone who's supposed to be like, innocent and in a sense like stupid and like not know what's going on but like if it's a genius child they like have the same like they have the understanding of an adult and i feel like what he's trying to say is it's going to be like a new leader for the blacks and yeah like the last few lines of this book kind of hit really hard it's like nobody loves a genius child kill him and let his soul run wild that's kind of really depressing when you think about it. It makes me wonder if Langston Hughes is going to be like tough time for me. Well, like this might be like cool sorry, but it sort of reminds me of back in slavery when like they said that slavery was in the Bible and that God wanted it to be like this. And that I feel like a genius child maybe is a slave that could read or something and maybe that read I don't know. It just sure. it like that it would change he would stand up for this and change everything that people are still change. Sure. Excellent. Excellent. Maybe even a good one there to wrap up. I think we're probably yeah, we're going to hear the bell shortly. Some really interesting thoughts there as Sloan concludes. Hold one second here as we wrap up. I just want to I just want to say thank you. I thought you did an excellent job interacting with each other. Let's give ourselves a nice little slow golf clap there. Good seminar work today. Appreciate that. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chris, for being with us.